All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. And welcome back, everybody, to our 33rd episode. It's mid-May 2022, and you could argue any number of issues are commanding attention in the electricity industry right now, but you can't go wrong with transmission. PJM is in the midst of a controversial and at times acrimonious transition to reform its queue for new generation to request interconnection to the electricity grid and the resulting costs to make the necessary grid additions. It's also in the midst of reforming its requirements for how much power a generator must be able to deliver to the grid, how the resulting network upgrades necessary to make that possible get paid for, and what rights to inject into the grid those generators receive, not to mention efforts to align the grid operator's long and short horizon transmission planning. Add to that FERC's notice of proposed rulemaking on transmission, and you can pretty much guarantee that transmission will be a top of mind issue for a long time to come. With that, I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, I think you know what this month's question is. What the heck happened to the Sixers? Yeah, their season ended, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> so it, it, it ended uh, very ungracefully, and yet again, uh, we've, we've exited in the, uh, in the, before even making the Eastern Conference final. So uh, getting used to it. Um, it was a tough series, you know, hats off to Miami. They, they played well, but we didn't make it that hard on them at times. So, um, moving on to baseball, I guess. Ah, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, with that, uh, we've got plenty to talk about this month. So why don't you take it away and in introducing our guest? Absolutely. And joining us this month is chairman Jason Stanick from the Maryland commission, um, Jason joins a long list of terrific dignitaries in the GT Power Hour Two-Timers Club. Uh, Chairman Chatterjee was on the show twice. Chairman Glick was on the show twice. Uh, PJM's IMM Joe Bowering was on the show, show twice. And now we get to welcome uh, Chairman Stanek back. Uh, I don't uh, want to go out on a limb here and, and say that most folks don't need an introduction to Chairman Stanek. Um, he was on Capitol Hill before a stint on the Maryland Sur- Public Service Commission. Before that, he worked at FERC. He joined the Maryland PSC in 2018. I would note that uh, Chairman Stanek actually was our first guest in the COVID era. So um, when he was on the show, it was actually the first time we did the show remotely. Um, I went back and listened to that episode. We, we have stepped up our technology game significantly <laughs> that, since then. Um, and we also are probably going to have tougher questions today. So uh, with that said, Chairman Stanek, welcome back to the GT Power Hour. Gentlemen, uh, good afternoon, and thank you for allowing me to be a, a returning guest. It's uh, it's quite an honor, and it's hard to believe almost two and a half years have passed since uh, our last conversation. That is amazing, man. It's just uh, so uh, for anyone who is uh, following the the PJM uh, situation, we are we are about to have our second in person meeting in the past what two years, and uh, I'm one of the things I was thinking about is just like I- I'm. I'm intrigued to see what has changed for some people. Cause I know for myself, you know, we've bought a house, we blah, 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 blah. Like I'm married. 
uh, I'm just really intrigued to see what has happened to everybody else when we go back to these meetings um, that I really haven't talked to. And I'm sure things have happened in their lives as well. So uh, it's exciting. I can yeah. tell you, Rory, that I, I've, I've gained about 20 pounds. So that's the only <laughs> thing I could uh, claim over the past uh, two and a half oh, years. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, well, uh, uh, you know, getting out again. Hopefully that'll help us all uh, get, get a few more steps in, perhaps. Okay. Well, let's focus on three areas today uh, in, in, in what's going on in Maryland. And the, your recently enacted Maryland Climate Solutions Now Act of 2022 and decarbonization generally, transmission and offshore wind. So to start, the Maryland Climate Solutions Now Act passed the General Assembly this spring and has been called, quote, arguably the most ambitious climate change law adopted by any state in the country. The act calls for Maryland to reduce greenhouse gases by 60% compared to a 20. 2006 baseline by 2031, and for the Maryland economy to reach net zero emissions by 2045. We recently had your counterpart in Illinois on the program to talk about implementing their climate-focused legislation, and it was very obvious that there's a lot of work ahead for the Illinois Commission. In fact, we titled that episode, Workers Wanted. What's Maryland's plan? Are you also here on the show soliciting job applications like Illinois? Oh, I only wish I had the same problem as uh, Chair Zaleski in, in Illinois. Unfortunately, the, the legislation that passed did not provide for any additional positions at mm. our commission. So it's, it's a tough spot because our state, with very progressive policies, uh, is, is not allowing for the commission to, to expand in order to tackle a lot of these climate-related, energy-related challenges. All right. Uh, well, let's hop into the Maryland Climate Solutions Act now. Act. Uh, there's clearly a lot in this bill, a lot, um, a, a lot that needs to be implemented. Uh, but there's also just a lot of general policy changes of directions. And one of the things we got into this a little bit last month with Princeton professor Jesse Jenkins. Uh, one of the things that you know clearly the act said is we want to electrify more. Uh, we want to electrify our buildings. We want to electrify our transportation systems. We want more people consuming electricity. Um, but we're also going to have to do that at a time when we're dramatically um, reducing emissions. And like, like I said, with Jesse Jenkins, he said, at least in PJM and in New Jersey specifically, they were looking at an 85% increase in electricity usage at peak. How do you see this tension playing out at Maryland? The tension specifically being, all right, we got to electrify more and reduce carbon aggressively. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. No, it's it's a very interesting challenge. Rory just mentioned those very aggressive numbers that we have to reach in in just nine years to re reach that sixty percent reduction in GHG emissions. Meanwhile, there's a heavy push in terms of electrifying everything from transportation to to heating of residential and commercial buildings. Meanwhile. PGM's load forecasts going out into the foreseeable future are relatively flat. So you have to question whose numbers are, are most accurate and how much are we going to, to spend, at least in the very near term, to, to accommodate this, this transition. That Climate Solutions Now Act is, uh, is the most aggressive uh, piece of legislation of any state in the country. And the, the timetable um, both the emissions reduction and the net zero target in 2045 um, will be challenging to, to get to, no, no, no question there. The PSC has a number of charges under that p, uh, piece of legislation. 
in order to study whether or not it's feasible being a member of PJM uh, to, to reach these targets. And that study is, is going to be due in the fall of 2023, so just next year, with regulations to be implemented by 2025. So we're working hard now. Um, the, the law was not signed by Governor Hogan, but it will uh, go into effect by operational law without his signature. Uh, unlike Illinois, the, the commission does not have the authority to hire additional staff. So we're going to be doing this in-house with existing employees and perhaps a few contractors to, to help us out. But it's a, it's a tremendous lift, but we will, we will get it done. And as part of that study, I mean, what in your mind is the most challenging question? I mean, what, what, what do you think is going to be the toughest one for you guys to tackle? Uh, no, no question. Distribution system planning is going to be a, a really tough issue for us. Up until now, system planning has been exclusively within the domain of our local utilities, our local electric utilities. And with this legislation, we're going to have to open up that process to a number of stakeholders who previously were not at, at the table, while also ensuring the confidentiality of the uh, the system information and, and some of the, the non-public um, topology information. We're, we're very mindful that the distribution grid is being influenced now by so many uh, factors that we didn't see in previous years, whether it be energy storage projects, uh, increased penetration of electric vehicle charging stations, um, increased use of DERs and, and microgrids. So all of these various factors are, are pushing or pulling distribution planning in one way or another. And if we are to realize some of these very aggressive goals, the distribution system as a whole is going to have to uh, evolve in, in many respects. So we're doing the planning now. We want to make sure we have the capacity as well on the system. So we have to work very closely with, with PJM because these, uh, these timetables are, are tight and they're coming up very, very quickly. The tension that you mentioned, Glenn, a, a moment ago is, is real. So to the extent that we're going to put more and more on the, the grid, it's going to be more expensive. We're going to need to invest in new upgrades, new substations uh, from, from the shore to the, the panhandle. Um, it's, Maryland has these progressive policies and they're, they're not going to come cheap, but they've been a priority of the state and both uh, state level officials as well as officials in PGM are, are recognizing these challenges and we're gonna, going to do our best to get them done on time. I couldn't help but noticing, in, it came out this week, the state of the market report for January of, to March of 2022. And you know, wholesale electricity prices are up 75% from where they were last year. And you know, you talk, and that's that's on the wholesale generation side of things. And the IMIM said that's competitive and indicative of competitive market forces. But you know, if you're talking about parallel increases on the distribution side of things, um, I have to imagine affordability is going to be a real big concern for for any regulator looking at this. Affordability is always top of mind right now. In addition to increases in the distribution rates. Ratepayers are seeing increases in the commodity rates right now, whether it be natural gas or, or electricity. And oftentimes the, the customers are just looking at the amount that they, they owe the utility, uh, not knowing what component comes from, from where. And to the extent we add on additional surcharges, whether it be for electric vehicle charging stations, uh, offshore wind renewable energy credits, uh, storage, or even electric um, school buses, 
these line items begin to, to add up. And to the extent we don't re recoup these expenses from taxpayers, we will have to re recoup them from ratepayers. So it's obviously a concern of both myself and, and my colleagues going forward. How are you looking at the renewable development so far in Maryland? I mean, are, you, are you pleased with how it's gone? Is it keeping pace with the goals? Or are you concerned that you're behind? Or are you going to have to spend more to catch up? I, I am concerned with the, the pace of renewable development in, in the state, both with respect to, to solar and to offshore wind. I think we have very constructive policies, but they could only move so fast. We've seen a lot of uh, landowner opposition to the construction of large utility scale solar facilities across the state. Even some of the smaller community solar uh, generating stations have attracted some opposition. Same goes true for offshore wind and onshore wind. Uh, folks do not want to be necessarily in the, in the shadow of uh, spinning turbine blades. And off of the coast of Maryland, there have been some opposition with respect to the, uh, the local beach communities there and the construction of these large offshore turbines that are going to be upwards of 20 plus miles off of the coast. So we have large aspirations, but actually constructing these projects, interconnecting them to the, the local distribution grid. We know of the, the generation interconnection queue issues that have been plaguing PJM. These are all concerns that are slowing down our uh, uh, ambitions to reach a 50% RPS target by, by 2030. So 2030 is the, the next upcoming milestone. Um, it's uh, it's going to be a, a serious challenge, and we're working through them as, as fast as we can, but it's, it's much slower than I would have hoped for. It sounds to me like Maryland is going to be, you know, a, one of the main test cases for this sort of uh, navigating this tension that we hear about all the time about, you know, there's there's this sort of macro interest in moving to um, uh, more renewable generation and, and moving to a, a clean emissions or a clean energy grid. Uh, and then the micro uh, individual tensions of actually how it gets implemented and on the ground concerns. Um, it, it's really seeming like, like Maryland is shaping up to be one of the primary test cases for how that happens. I, I think you nailed it uh, spot on. In theory, we would be at 100% clean and renewable energy in, in Maryland today if we could uh, do so. But there's obviously a number of uh, hurdles and roadblocks at the, the state level, at the local level, and even at the, the federal level with some uh, siting concerns. It's interesting when you look at Maryland's energy profile, because currently 90% of our in-state generation are still, we're still very reliant on thermal resources. So coal, natural gas, and of course, our um, uh, nuclear generating station down at at Calvert Cliff. So that, that constitutes 90% of our resources in the ground in state. However, when you take a look at the interconnection queue for Maryland projects, 97% of those projects are exclusively renewable. So we're talking wow. about uh, solar, we're talking about wind and energy storage. It's a, it's a really interesting situation we're dealing with here. Yeah, I mean, PJM just put out their Grid of the Future study where, I mean, they basically said we got about 15,000 megawatts of renewable energy in PJM right now, but they're they're planning in the next 15 years for that, that to go up to 120,000 megawatts. So we have to add an additional 105,000 megawatts, which is 
which is an awful, awful lot of megawatts um, to add, especially in the face of some of these local issues you're raising. So um, I'm and not sure I, how that story ends. I, I would commend your listeners to taking a, a good look of that grid of the future study uh, because it does provide a comprehensive view of incorporating all of the state public policies, what it's going to take if each of these policies were to be implemented over the, the next 10 years, as well as all the emerging trends, the, the factors that they need to consider as they, they plan out for uh, the grid. So it's a, it's a relatively short study weighing in at just under 50 pages, but there's a lot of great information in there. I would agree. All right. Uh, maybe let's go back to the Climate Solutions Act a little bit. Um, and we talked about this a bit, but maybe we could drill down a little bit further. Um, but the Climate Solutions Act requires utilities to increase investments in programs designed to increase energy conservation and achieve up to a 2.5% annual decline in electricity sales by 2027. Um, you mentioned PJM has a relatively flat um, you know, demand forecast, but yet we, like I said, we heard from Professor J- Jesse Jenkins last week saying, um, which I think makes a lot more sense, hey, all this electrification, the megawatts are going to have to come from somewhere. So have you started the conversation with the utilities about how they can achieve um, seem seemingly conflicting goals of electrifying their, their buildings, electrifying the transportation network while reducing their usage by 25, 20, or excuse me, their sales by 2.5%. We have started that conversation. In fact, just earlier this month, we had a hearing with respect to our state's uh, energy efficiency program called Empower. And we've up until now had very aggressive 2% annual year over year reductions and the new state law, as you referenced, has a 2.5% reduction target. Up until now, we've been focused on much of the low-hanging fruit in terms of replacing incandescent bulbs with uh, LEDs, home energy tune-ups for some of your HVAC and appliances, uh, recycling uh, energy, energy uh, high-intensity appliances with uh, better energy star refrigerators, air conditioners, and, and whatnot. However, the low-hanging fruit has now entirely been plucked, and the question that we're discussing with the utilities is, do we move away from a peak-shaving model in terms of energy efficiency and move towards a new regime focused more on greenhouse gas reductions? So that's an issue that we're we're experiencing now. We've had this program in effect for about 15 years. It's been a a uh, nationally recognized program. But we, we recognize that there's only so much more we could squeeze out of this program at the existing costs. Any additional uh, KWHs that we uh, squeeze out going forward are go- going to come at a more uh, higher cost to, to rate pairs. So it's a, it's a tension. We're trying to uh, electrify everything, but at the same time, reduce our, our total consumption. And it's, uh, it, we uh, wait to see what's going to actually occur. It's, uh, it's a bit of a question. I think, I think we're all realizing why you have a tough job, <laughs> Mr. Chairman. <laughs> the, the, there's no tough... easy answers here. Uh, there, but we're, there we're is it. Okay. What does is, what is a GHG, pro, or excuse me, an energy efficiency program focused on GHG emissions look like? Well, I, I think the, the entire mission of the, the program will be different. Luckily, we have a few years to, to consider what the, the new next generation program would look like. 
Uh, it would not start until January of 2024. Okay. So our, at our hearing last week, we heard from a number of interests. Of course, the utilities were present. We heard from the ratepayer advocate of the state. We heard from environmental interests. And we heard from tradesmen, the, the folks that actually install appliances in the homes of Marylanders to get their take as well. How are they going to effectively uh, sell a heat pump when customers are asking for a gas-fired furnace that could arguably be cheaper and provide right. uh, more comfort at home than a, than a heat pump that may not be able to keep up on the, the coldest days of the, of the state? So the, these are issues that we're, we're considering right now. Uh, the state hasn't gone as far as requiring uh, any moratoriums on natural gas infrastructure, but we've seen that occurring in, in states around the country from New York to California. So it's, uh, it's an issue that's on the near-term horizon for sure. Um, okay, so you're now tasked with filing annual reports on the measures taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, and you have to include in that additional capacity to accommodate these anticipated uh, increased loads that we're talking about. You have to file new regulations by July 1st, 2025 to implement new system planning and improvements to meet these goals. Do you take all of that as a charge from the General Assembly, the State General Assembly, to build more generation in Maryland? Yes, I, I do. It's not explicit, but it's most definitely implicit that we, we need to uh, construct and develop more renewable energy resources in state it's no secret that Maryland is a net energy importer. Currently, we import about one-third of our electricity needs from, uh, from PGM and from our neighboring states. So th the challenge will be to, to scale up very quickly over the next couple of years and to figure out how are we going to build more utility-scale solar, which is the predominant uh, new generation resource in the interconnection queue. And not far behind that is going to be wind. Obviously, we have uh, very lofty offshore wind aspirations, and we've already approved over 2,000 megawatts of, of new offshore wind. It's going to be a number of years before that comes online. But there's no question that our legislature has uh, shown a strong preference to building more generation in-state so we can decrease reliance on both our grid and our neighbors. You've already mentioned, you know, local uh, land use concerns and viewscape concerns. Is this needle threadable or are you going to have to hammer it through? I think we'll need we'll need a hammer. Okay. Uh, the notwithstanding the fact that the, the Supreme Court of the, the state of Maryland has made clear that the commission has exclusive jurisdiction when it comes to zoning issues. It doesn't stop parties and uh, local municipalities from continuing to challenge the commission's authority. So we're, we're back in court on a number of these cases. We'll, we'll litigate them, but it takes time. It takes uh, money. And oftentimes this level of uncertainty uh, is concerning to renewable developers and they sure. may just m move on and move to another state. But I mean, you can't, you can't have that happen, right? I mean, you're, you're under legislative requirement to make them happen, correct? We, we correct uh, the, the statute has these very clear uh, goals and deadlines. The consequences of, of meeting them uh, are unknown at this point, but they're not aspirations. They are actually carved in statute 
And we're doing our best to, to get there with the, the staff and the resources that we have. But in, in, in this country, uh, anybody could file a lawsuit at the, the drop of a hat. And we've seen major infrastructure projects, both generation and I should tell you transmission projects that we desperately need in this state have been um, rejected or under continuous litigation, such as the transmission line that was designed to uh, interconnect both Pennsylvania and Maryland. Uh, these will be tied up in the courts for, for many years to come. Yeah. Yeah. I know that line is, uh, uh, still, uh, well, I, I, is it done now? I, I'm not even sure if it's done. I know it's no. still part Pennsylvania of the... said no. Uh, uh yeah. Pennsylvania, yeah. Pennsylvania said, uh, no to the line. The public utility commission did the developer, uh, filed an appeal. The Pennsylvania courts just last week uh, denied the appeal and largely mm. sided with the Pennsylvania Commission. However, there's still litigation in the U.S. District Court that's pending. So I don't believe the, the last chapter of this transmission line has been written yet. So stay tuned. Okay. Transource 9A. All right. <laughs> there you go. All right. So you mentioned, obviously, developing solar and wind in Maryland. You know, but again, one of the things we heard from you know, Jesse Jenkins, at least as it relates to New Jersey, is that New Jersey is going to need new natural gas plants, ironically, to meet its climate goals. Um, how do you see that playing out in Maryland? And, and I'll just put it right at you. I mean, do you foresee um, a new natural gas plant being built in Maryland in the future? It would be very hard for me to envision based on the, the political right. climate right now of us certificating a new natural gas plant. Uh, back in 2020, we authorized an extension of a CPCN for a Panda Power natural gas plant in Prince George's County, Maryland. And that was the, the last certificate that we've had the opportunity to review. I would be very surprised to see any large natural gas plant um, be cited in the state going forward. It's, it's not a very constructive environment. And I think many of the financiers who back these infrastructure projects uh, would be concerned to put capital at risk. Yeah, I think I think I would agree with you. So I mean that that almost puts Maryland on a path to continue to rely on you know some imports. I mean, you, I mean as you mentioned, you still have you know the lion's share of the generation in Maryland being thermal resources. But to the extent you're going to need incremental megawatts um, like, that look like that, that have that flexibility, they're probably coming from other states. And we have to, we, we do pay for those attributes in the form of RECs to uh, out-of-state generation. And we, right. we approve those at the PSC and it's, it's very expensive. And it's, it's sad to see that state rate pair dollars are going to fund out-of-state clean and uh, renewable energy projects. But that's the, that's the state of play right now. Fair enough. Hmm. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's put that down for, uh, for, for now and switch over to transmission. And we said we got three things we're going to talk about today. Let's we're going to talk about them. Uh, you sit on the FERC NARUC Joint Federal State Task Force on Transmission. Uh, there have been three meetings so far. Uh, how's it going? And do you think that the task force is meeting its objectives? I'm not sure if I, if I had great expectations going into the task force, but okay. I can tell you now, after just three meetings, it has exceeded my my wildest expectations. The Good. level of cooperation, a collaboration between the state commissioners and our federal counterparts um, has been impressive. 
what the public only sees are the the three meetings that we've had in in Louisville and Washington and most recently this month a virtual meeting but behind the scenes the the state commissioners the 10 of us have been working on a weekly basis to analyze these issues to discuss potential solutions and then to bring them back in a public setting to our FERC friends. And as you probably saw at the last meeting where we discussed the thorny issues of generator interconnection queue reform, as well as the continuation of the participant funding financing model, there was hours spent on what the solutions should look like. So we're well past the discussion stage of framing the problem, but now we're actually discussing solutions with the help of many stakeholders who, who come and they consult with us, uh, the many folks who have spent time filing comments in FERC's ANOPER and soon the, the NOPER dockets, the, the several NOPER dockets that we will be working with in the, the next probably six months to come. So like I said, I, I wasn't particularly bullish uh, that we would accomplish so much in such a short amount of time, but over the past six months, we've, we've done a lot and hopefully we've moved the needle on this this very important conversation. So it sounds like you are saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying the states are closer to agreement now than when this process started. Is that is that fair? Well, we've reached a better understanding of where we all sit. Okay. The, the 10, the 10 state enough. commissioners represent five different regions of the, the country, though the West, New England, the South, the Mid-Atlantic, mm-hmm. and the Midwest. So obviously, we bring to the discussion different concerns, different perspectives. Some of us are in RTO regions, others are represent the bilateral markets. We've reached a lot of agreement and understanding and education amongst the, the 10 of us during these discussions. And then we bring that to our colleagues at FERC and uh, hope to share with them our perspectives as FERC moves forward with these very, very important rulemakings. We haven't seen a rulemaking like we did in response to the ANOPER since Order 1000 came out more than more than a decade ago. So we, we have FERC's attention, we have their interest, and hopefully the, the state voices are, are being heard. And in fact, I, I know they're being heard. So the, the conversations will continue. The task force was charged for a three-year period. So we have one year down, two more to go. You know, I got to say, as somebody who's watched bits and pieces uh, some days more than others of, of, of these sessions, I mean, I think one of my takeaways from it is just re- refreshing to see state commissioners so, you know, focused on these issues in this policy. I mean, just I mean, there's a lot of pressures on, on your time, Mr. Chairman, and the, 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 the time of other commissioners and to be able to devote the time to really understand these transmission issues and to have leaders in each region of the country who are doing that, um, you know, speaks volume for the, 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 the merits of doing something like this. Because, like I said, if, if this, these conversations weren't going on, uh, I guarantee you, um, you and your fellow colleagues will be focused on other priority issues of the day. No, they, they have really dedicated a large amount of their time. I've, I've told some people it feels like a second full-time job to be yeah. participating on the, the task, task force. But we, we move forward. We'll have our next meeting in July of this year at the annual San Diego meeting of NARUC. And we'll be tackling uh, additional issues, including the issue of um, uh, interregional development of transmission. Transmission. Yeah, that's one of Commissioner Christie's issues. 
You 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 mentioned the Noper there. Uh, are are you willing to offer any sort of uh, uh, critique of it? I mean, the, the things that that Ferk did well, things that you would have liked them to have seen differently. Right. I, I think everybody could find something to support and critique in a document that is nearly five hundred pages. I've made my way through most of it, and it, at times the Noper was uh, rather repetitive. Uh, emphasizing some points over and over again, the document could have probably been cut uh, in half at a, at a minimum. But a, a, as I as I noted, this is the largest reform of transmission policy in this country in in over ten years, and it is long overdue and, and sorely needed. Uh, overall, with respect to the, the transmission and the, the cost allocation reforms, I think FERC is, is on the right track. Uh, comments will be due later this summer on, on the NOPR, and, and Maryland will definitely have some um, more articulate comments to, uh, to provide. But the fact of the matter is we do need long-range transmission planning, whether it be 20 years or 15 years, which uh, PGM is, is currently looking at. I don't know if that makes uh, a major difference, but we need a, a requirement well beyond what PGM currently looks at when they're developing their RTEP. An examination of benefits is, is long overdue. We've, we've had uh, cost allocation concerns and disputes um, as, as long as I could remember. Moving forward, if there's a benefit-focused analysis, I think that will um, resolve some of these concerns and allow ratepayers and, and states to tell their customers, okay, this is what we'll need to contribute to the development of needed transmission. And this is what type of benefit you'll receive. And hope, hopefully there's some type of a, a multiplier effect. The trouble up until now is that a lot of these benefits have been speculative in terms of being unable to put a price tag on it. And some of these, such as clean air and clean water, may, we may never be able to uh, put a price tag on. But we have additional information now, and we have lots of different tools, and we have load flow uh, analysis and transmission um, transfer uh, distribution factors that we could look at to determine who's responsible, who benefits, and at the end of the day, who should pay for these uh, necessary and beneficial uh, upgrades to our system. You know, Rory, when we had when we had Commissioner Christie on the podcast a couple of months ago, we asked him the question: If if was there any reason to be optimistic that the states could come to ah. agreement on cost allocation? <laughs> he just said no <laughs> and moved on to the next question. But I I even think Commissioner Christie's warming up a little bit to some of these ideas. <laughs> so. And, and let, let let me say, I think I'm optimistic that the states, uh, if if given a path to work together and hammer out a cost allocation. Uh, proposal, as is envisioned in the NOPER, I think the folks in Harrisburg and Annapolis could sit down. Uh, I know that FERC is only proposing 90 days for the states to hammer that out, and that might not be sufficient um, amount of time. But it's a, it's a signal, it's a tip of the hat to the states that the federal regulator wants to have the input of the states, and to the extent that two or, or three states, or however many states this transmission project will touch, could come to an agreement on cost allocation, FERC would effectively bless that instead of using some other type of regional methodology. Yeah, and you're giving the states the first bite at the apple, right? Which I think is critical. 
And I, I think that's important. And, and that theme resonated throughout the 475 pages of, of the NOPR, the, the deference and recognition that state regulators have a serious hand in this policy. And that's a level of recognition that I've never seen at FERC uh, to date, to be quite honest. As a state regulator, I felt like the dog that caught the car as I was flipping through the, the NOPR and just noted how many times either the task force was referenced, individual comments of particular state regulators were in the, buried in the footnotes of the proposed rulemaking. So we, we have our FERC's attention. We also um, are very appreciative to, to FERC's recognition of our role. Chairman, um, the third, third topic, we, we've got to make sure we get through all three. Any updates on Maryland's offshore wind initiative? So uh, most recently in December, the commission uh, approved the latest tranche. We call it round two of our offshore wind solicitation. So now we're up to about 2,000 megawatts, actually more than 2,000 megawatts of offshore wind has been procured. Uh, we've awarded contracts to two developers, uh, an Italian developer named U.S. Wind, as well as a, a Dutch developer, uh, Orsted. Mm -hmm. And both of those uh, project developers are, are working now with the federal government to get all the necessary approvals from the Department of the Interior, uh, which hopefully shouldn't take more than a couple of years. Uh, but the federal process up until recently has been bogged down. Uh, in terms of state approvals, though, they've, they have the green light to, to move forward, and we're excited to, to see some steel being uh, built in the water in the, in the coming years. I love how you said that optimistically. It should only take a couple of years. <laughs> we, 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 we've waited very long. It's, it's, it's been more than a, a decade since yeah. some of these concepts were uh, bantered about. Uh, but we, we know how long the process at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management takes. And under the Biden administration, they've attempted to streamline that process, but it's still going to, to be a slog. So, so we're sitting here in May of 22. When, when do you think the first turbine is going to be spinning in the water off of Maryland? If, if I were to guess, and the deadlines have been delayed and pushed back right. year after year, my, my hope is sometime in 2025. 2025. Okay. 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 You here to hear first. <laughs> December 2025. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Very good. Um, all right. That was very helpful. Uh, just real quickly, um, New Jersey has uh, got, actually it got approved by FERC, the state agreement approach. Uh, to manage the transmission costs associated with um, New Jersey's offshore wind development. Is, uh, is Maryland considering the same option? Not at, at this time. Uh, when the state agreement approach was, was first um, proposed a number of years ago, uh, a number of states were on record as, as opposing uh, state agreement approach, including Maryland, District of Columbia, uh, and the, the state of Delaware. It's one tool in the toolbox to get needed transmission built. And I recognize that New Jersey has pursued that and the application was recently approved by, by FERC. But it, it'll still take some amount of time before we determine whether the use of the state agreement approach was, was successful by New Jersey. And, and I hope it is. New Jersey has very aggressive goals similar to, to Maryland and they could not wait for uh, other states to either sign on board or commit to funding some of the cost of this very expensive transmission that they will need to bring offshore wind on shore. 
But at the same time, the state agreement approach rewards potential free riders that may benefit that are not in the state of New Jersey. So for instance, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York may be able to benefit once this new transmission is constructed uh, in terms of bringing on this, this offshore wind. And one could argue that one of the, the guiding principles under Order 1000 is the beneficiary pays rule. And to the extent that you have free riders um, benefiting off of the, the contributions of New Jersey ratepayers, I'm not sure how this all squares together. So at, at this point, we will all sit back, see how this plays out, see if New Jersey can construct this, this project and what the cost implications will be, as well as whether other states will benefit from New Jersey effectively paying full freight for the transmission that it needs to accomplish its uh, state goals. So, so how will the transmission then be built for the Maryland offshore wind projects? Are you just looking to run that through the traditional PJM RTEP process? That, that's an open question right now. Uh, we've been focusing so much on getting the approvals for the, the turbines to be constructed that we haven't arguably uh, spent as much time on developing the, the needed, eventually needed onshore uh, connection system there. So one option would be go using the, the traditional model. Uh, PGM in October of last year did conduct an offshore wind study where they've begun to model some of the uh, mid-Atlantic offshore wind projects. But it is, it is too early to, to commit to how we would fund any collection system. And hopefully it will be some type of offshore inter, um, collector system as opposed to um, lateral lines that, that head out to each of the individual uh, wind farms out in the Atlantic. So uh, time will tell. We need to work together. The, the state of Maryland has entered into an MOU with uh, our neighbors to the south, including Virginia and North Carolina. And we've participated in work groups with our neighbors to the north from New Jersey and Delaware all the way up to, to Massachusetts. Uh, but we're not at a point to commit to figuring out exactly how we'll finance this offshore wind um, in the near term. But it's obviously a challenge and something we'll need to address soon. Okay. Now for my, I think it's probably my favorite part of the show. I, I, I particularly like writing the questions, so uh, I'm excited to ask them. Uh, rapid fire. Here we go, Chairman. You did your undergraduate studies at Tulane University. Where do you rank the green wave in the hierarchy of mascots? I've never understood why we had a wave as a mascot. About 10 years ago, they added a pelican, which is much more appropriate. So I, I would put the wave in the basement somewhere. Is it, wow. Wow. Okay, boy. Um, that's a hot take. All right. I kind of like the green wave personally. All right. I'm going to New Orleans later this year. What's the one thing I shouldn't miss? Well, if you enjoy jazz, I, I would recommend that you go to the far end of the French Quarter on Frenchman Street. Uh if you go after hours, that's when the activity starts up and you'll, you'll have a good time. Enjoy a hot dog on the balcony and just watch all of the pop-up uh, jazz ensembles on the street below you. I love that idea. I will do that. And I'm glad we're recording this because then I'll be able to go back and check all the details again. <laughs> okay. Uh, you went to law school in Buffalo. Did you have to get thrown through a table to graduate? I did. I did not. But uh, after surviving three winters in, in Buffalo, it, it felt that way. It's it's a tough town. It's a, it's a tough and rough town to uh, 
to live in. Fortunately, I only had to spend three years of my life there. <laughs> <laughs> you made it out. Okay. What exactly characterizes a legitimate buffalo wing? Great question. I, I don't have the most discriminating palate, but as you probably know, the buffalo wing was invented um, at the Anchor Bar, which is a bit of a dive restaurant on Main Street in, in Buffalo. Uh-huh. So, so check that out, and I'm sure they'll give you the the secret. But as long as it's uh, juicy, I'm I'm good with a buffalo wing. That's hey, you know, that's right. A lot, lot, of, lot of good meat on the bone. That's what you're looking for. Yeah, there's I, a I there's a great diner out by the uh, Buffalo Airport. Bill Flynn turned me on to a former chair of the uh, New York Public Service to commission that uh has a killer chicken wing soup that is just mm. amazing so uh we'll have to find uh, that that one no I, i've been to that airport diner so on your next flight out of buffalo definitely stop it's only about Interesting. a block it's right there the airport yeah it's phenomenal what a, what a random location i guess there's a lot of people that are looking for last second meals or something i don't know um okay your bio says you also studied at unc how much do you hate kansas right now you know what? I was only at UNC for grad school for, for one year. So my blood isn't as blue as, okay. as many of those others. Okay. Um, but I, I respect the Jayhawks. They, 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 um, they deserved it this year. So I'm okay. not going to hold a grudge against KU. Okay. All right. That's good. That's fair. You know, that's great. It's what we want to see in our, in our uh, regulators, you know, kind of getting along, appreciating when other people do things well. That's great. Um, you're getting a new PSC commissioner. How do you plan to welcome your incoming colleague? I'm giving some thought to that. I've been on the commission four years now and I have yet to onboard a new commissioner. So mm. this is a, Oh, wow. A, wow. Yeah. It's a first for me. We've had a very stable commission over the past four years. Um, but her name is Patty Bubar. She brings a wealth of both federal and uh, local experience with respect to energy and environmental issues. Um, so I'm not sure if we open her, welcome her with uh, a Laurel and, and a hearty handshake or if we <laughs> her for a little while, but we'll, uh, We'll figure it out soon enough. She starts on May 18th. So we're looking forward to okay, that. Okay. All right. Five. Yep. You don't have much time. You got to figure that out. All right. Annapolis is nicknamed by somebody, apparently, the sailing capital of the world. How many boats do you own? No, I've heard that nickname before. But I, as a, a lifelong civil servant, I'm lucky if I have a <laughs> uh, fare for the water taxi. Um, so a, a total of zero. Horizon. Yeah, he, okay. He, he uh, is an electric car. That's good enough. Right? I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you have a prediction on who will be the next governor of Maryland? Uh, I, I do, but it probably wouldn't be in my interest. <laughs> oh, if I man, to really? Uh, we, uh, we do have a wide open field right now. I think more than a dozen contenders vying to be the, our next governor. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, stay tuned. The primaries have been pushed back to July, and then uh, then maybe I'll be willing to commit. Oh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, uh, corollary to that almost. Governor Hogan recently gave a speech at the Reagan Library calling for a GOP quote-unquote course correction. Sounds like you might be running for something else after governor, huh? Maybe? That that's a definite possibility. You've seen a number of outspoken uh, members of the Republican Party, including Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney. And um, the, the, the governor has has made clear that he's not in step with the uh, um, the current extremes of of the party. And uh, I'll be interested to see what his next move is. He steps out of office in January of next year. And uh, I, I hope he has bigger aspirations. He's done a tremendous uh, amount for the taxpayers and citizens of the state. Okay. The Preakness Stakes, the so-called middle jewel of the Triple Crown, occurs on May 21st. 
How much longer is it likely to call Pimlico its home? That, that's a great question. For anybody who's been up to Pimlico in recent years, the, the neighborhood is, uh, let, let us just say it's a rough neighborhood. Mm. And the facilities at Pimlico have just deteriorated um, beyond belief. And frankly, it's an embarrassment to the, the state. Um, and it's also the state's most popular annual event. Sure. I know we, we've committed hundreds of millions of dollars to the rehabilitation. So I don't think the Preakness is going anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I hope we could get moving on on beautifying and rehabilitating that facility sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of communities that are trying to do that. Philadelphia, we're in lots of areas that, uh, yeah, they've they've seen, they've seen tougher times. And um, Philly and Baltimore, yeah, share a lot of the same uh, uh, issues and problems and, and hopefully we could tackle them. Yeah. Solution. Okay. Why should people go to Macro this year? Oh, so many reasons. It's okay. a great agenda. We have a really <laughs> substantive agenda, um, but the, the venue is terrific at Nemecolon. And if you, if you like animals and visiting the zoo there, there's things mm-hmm. to do there. Um, if you like being lobbied by energy uh, utilities and others, <laughs> there, there's that opportunity as well. But uh, we're putting together a really substantive um, series of panels and discussions on everything from retail choice to transmission in the mid-Atlantic. So to the extent you haven't bought a ticket yet, they're still on sale. Go. I have a pair of fat bird cufflinks from Nemecolon that I still wear on occasion. <laughs> They're very nice. I like them. Everybody likes the chunky bird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's now time for the section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to people who we think need it. Jason, who would you want to talk to and about what? Well, Glenn just outed me as an EV fanatic, and, and I, I do love the electric vehicles. Uh, Louis DeJoy, who is the Postmaster General of the United States, just committed to purchasing more next-generation mail trucks that only get about eight miles to the gallon. We need, mm. we need to change that. We need to electrify the, one of the largest civilian fleets in the country, and I would ask him to reconsider the, the contract that he obligated the, the United States to. Short and sweet. Okay. Yeah. That's good I mean, advice. That, yeah. That is, that is good advice. That's very, very specific too. I like that one. That was great. Yeah. Okay. Glenn, what do you got? Yeah. My two minutes of advice this month is going to be direct as well. And I'm giving it to the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. As I mentioned earlier, the PJM IMM just published the quarterly state of the market report from January to March of this year. And prices were up 75% from a year ago. Also buried in that report were numbers related to the profitability of nuclear plants in PJM. And according to the PJM IMM, the two nuclear facilities that the BPU awarded $300 million in ZEC payments, subsidies to, are slated to end 2022 with a whopping $1.1 billion surplus. And if you add in the subsidy, you get over $1.4 billion going to these two plants. Come on, New Jersey. Your people are struggling to make ends meet. Prices are up everywhere. You can easily put $300 million a year back in their pockets by ending this blatant corporate welfare. Open the proceeding now. Get it done now. Your people are counting on you. Okay. And for my two minutes, 
I'd like to speak with all the overly confident analysts slash writers slash speakers on the internet who on one hand bemoan what they perceive as the languid pace of the emissions-free energy transition and on the other hand deride everyone who has the temerity, the absolute gall to either disagree entirely with their perspective, question assumptions, expectations, or goals, or simply not share the zealot belief of the gravity of the situation in moving to emissions-free generation. I decided on this topic after browsing a variety of reactions to a new book written by Vaclav Smil called How the World Really Works, The Science Behind How We Got Here and Where We're Going. In hindsight, I should probably be a little embarrassed to admit I previously had no idea of Smil's academic pedigree, nor had even read the book, but the reviews were telling in their contemptuousness. It appears Smil pours cold water on many of the energy transitions loftier expectations, and proponents who have staked their careers on being the vanguard of the rah-rah for renewables crowd chose to tear him down rather than address his arguments with intellectual honesty. I still haven't yet read the book, but I've already learned a lot through it. To those outspoken, disdainful folks, I say lower your chins just a little bit so you're not always looking down your nose at everyone else. As we detailed earlier today, this stuff isn't easy not only to do, but to grasp conceptually. Not everybody spends every waking hour thinking deeply about this one very specific topic. As our guest last month, Professor Jesse Jenkins noted, being able to do that is a luxury not afforded to most. So when you scoff or dismiss anyone that you hubristically decide is not on your level, or even just not on the same page as you, you do the whole movement a disservice. More than half a century of fighting for environmental causes should have taught you that you need everyone on board to make the kinds of worldwide changes needed. And you turn them off when you refuse to meet them at their level and engage in a way that's meaningful to them. It's a main tenet of effective communications. Doesn't matter if the style works for you or not, all that matters is if it works for your audience. Obviously, your approach hasn't been working. Learn from that and try a different approach. Who knows? Maybe we'll actually find a way to get everyone on board with solving this thing. And that's my two minutes. Um, gentlemen, this has again been another fine hour, more or less. Uh, any final thoughts before we let our audience go? Thank you again for the opportunity to be a, a returning uh, visitor here. Uh, just keep an eye on, on Maryland, I would say. We, we have a lot of goals and not a lot of time to do it. Uh, we're the canary in the coal mine. So if, if we can't do it, it'll serve as an example to, to other states. But I have a feeling we will be able to, to make our very aggressive goals in the short amount of time. So uh, watch this space. Canary in the coal mine. I think you just named our episode. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was good. I thought it was going to be eyes on Maryland. <laughs> well, I got a couple of ones. I don't know yet. I mean, yeah. we'll find out. We'll find out. I don't know. Yeah. It could just be Chairman Stanek and the grid of the future. You know, there you maybe, go. maybe I'll do that one. You know, something like uh -huh. that. I was actually thinking of like uh, mopers, ropers, and nopers. There you go. <laughs> Man, we got so many good options this, this month. Well, you know, uh, actually, obviously, by the time people hear this section of the show, they'll have already uh, seen seen what the answer is. But it'll be, I'll be, I'll think about it. I'll have to think about what we're going to name it. Okay, Glenn, any final thoughts from you? No, just thanks to Chairman Stanick for joining us. Uh, you know, every time we have these conversations, I just continue to be amazed. Uh, at all the things that are being, you know, thrust not only in his plates, but state commissions in general these days are, 
you know, they have a lot of very serious issues that are going on at the state level right now. And it's great to see public servants like the chairman right in the middle of them. So thanks for being a guest, Mr. Chairman, and thanks for the great work you're doing. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the show and really like laying it down how, you know, what this is looking like. And and, um, I don't think I appreciated prior to this hour, just like you said, sort of the canary in the coal mine that that Maryland is likely to be and how much we should keep tabs on it. So I know I will do that and I hope our audience does as well. So thank you, uh, Chairman Stanek, for taking the time. And of course, thank you to our audience for listening. And until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.